quantum computing fundamentally is the best way to process information based on the laws of physics as we know them. I had constructed what I thought of as the generalization of the universal Turing machine. Can an astonishingly powerful new realm of computation be found within the quantum world? Will researchers ever realize the goal of what they call quantum supremacy? And what would it mean for our society if they did? From its fundamental building blocks to the ultimate goal of a truly universal quantum computer, join me, Oxford Professor of Philosophy Peter Millikan, as I explore this and many other questions on the Future Makers podcast. Available today from wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast, and I have uh, Dana Lewis. Uh, she's part of the Open Artificial Pancreas Project, Open APS Project. Um, she's the creator of the Do-It-Yourself Pancreas System, uh, founder of the Open Source Artificial Pancreas System Movement, and a passionate advocate of uh, patient-centered, driven, and designed research. So, Dana, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so tell me about the, uh, the project. What inspired you to think about pancreases and uh, to create this project? So I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at the age of 14, which is when I started, you know, knowing what the pancreas did. And in type 1 diabetes, your body no longer produces insulin. And we have technology like insulin pumps and continuous glucose monitors that help. But most people don't realize that a lot of those devices don't talk to each other. They're not automated. And so the human living with diabetes still has to do a lot of work. So a couple of years, I was able to leverage open source code to allow me to access my glucose data in real time off my device and was able to build a set of predictive alarms that would tell me what was going to happen in the future. And that also led me to building an algorithm and being able to put that on the computer, have that interoperate between those pumps and CGMs that previously couldn't talk to each other. And so that's what a closed loop system is. And that's what open APS is. It's a closed loop system where the pump and the CGM can talk to a phone or computer, decide based on what's happening, do you need to give more or less insulin? So it really started just because of personal experience and personal frustration with my devices. But because I've been helped by other people using open source code, we also wanted to share our code and our work. And that's why open APS is an open source project for anybody who wants to, to build their own do-it-yourself system. Yeah, I'm not a... Um... Type one diabetic or diabetic, you know, close probably, but I use the CGM and um, it seems like, you know, great technology, but it's also very arcane. It's, uh, you know, the sensor device you use is like from the 90s, it looks like. What, why do you think that they're not uh, set up to talk to all your computers and devices very easily? Why the, the holdback? 
You know, it's interesting and frustrating because that's a question I've been asking myself for many, many years. And unfortunately, even though we have the technological capability and have had it for over a decade, the way healthcare devices and technology is developed is very, very different than the technology development and speed of any other sector. And some of that is due to regulation and some of it is due to the inherent challenges in healthcare, which I get. It's not always going to be as fast as just software develop and something else. But I think there's also just not been the pressure and expectation for healthcare companies to be able to innovate and bring solutions to market as quickly as possible. And thankfully, that's starting to change. But I think the healthcare hardware device uh, development timeline needs to be updated. And also healthcare companies need to better figure out how to do software development for healthcare. Um, those two things are often lumped together, which slows things down further when they could perhaps be separated. And I have to give a lot of credit to the FDA, the regulatory body in the U.S. They're trying to help companies get pre-certified so that they can have all their processes approved so that when they have a software update or a new product, it gets approved and reviewed more quickly, which is great. But, you know, the FDA is doing everything they can and the companies have to step up and change their processes to match what's actually technologically possible. So we're, we're seeing progress, especially in diabetes, but I think it's frustrating and I think we have a long way to go in terms of all of healthcare. Uh, you know, really meet you, meeting the capabilities of what tech can do today. Yeah, what are some of the approximate timelines? You know, if a CGM company, for instance, wants to update its, you know, its reporting mechanism to interface with, uh, you know, a laptop or a smartphone, can that take months of approval or years? Or what's the approximate it, timeline? Uh, <laughs> that's hard to say because companies don't always release their plans. And it's usually the company that's taking long to do that release. Um, for example, what got me started in all this was wanting to make a louder CGM alarm and not being able to access my data. And back in 2013, when I started doing it myself, you know, with reverse engineered software and everything, I was told that it was coming in the next version. Um, and it took until five years later before that particular company released a software update that allowed people to adjust and customize the alarms related to the CGM data. Um, so that was technically possible all along for them to put in hardware, for them to put in software, but for whatever reason, they didn't prioritize that. And so it didn't come out till years later. Um, so I think that's one important role that the diabetes and the patient communities play in healthcare is helping companies understand the demand for things that companies think, oh, this isn't going to make me money. This doesn't really matter to patients. And for the patient community to say, yes, this absolutely matters. This is a game changer in terms of quality of life. Bring this out. Um, and now also we have the choice that if companies won't do it, the technology is there oftentimes for patients to do themselves. And it's not always perfect. It's not always easy, you know, and we would love to have a commercial solution, but if there's not going to be a commercial solution, then, you know, thankfully there's technology to, to do work around ourselves. So what, what is the open pancreas project? What's it about? So it's really about allowing patients to bridge the communications between the pump and the CGM and out, adding an algorithm to do the decision making. Because like I said, people with diabetes without a closed loop system, they have to constantly be thinking about their blood sugar levels, the amount of insulin in their body, what they're going to do, what they've been doing. Um, there's just so many factors that go into influencing your blood sugar. And if you don't have type 1 diabetes, you're in luck because your pancreas in your body does all of that itself. Like you've got the thermostat that's working. But in type 1 diabetes, you essentially have a broken thermostat. And so you can't regulate your blood glucose levels on your own. Um, you know, just internally. And so you have to do a lot of work and a lot of thinking 
um, and a lot of planning in order to make that happen yourself. And it's really, really hard because there's so many things that you can't measure that affect things. So what a closed loop system does is it puts a computer in the middle and every five minutes, it's going to read the data from the pump and the glucose monitor to say, okay, here's what I think is going to happen. You need more or less insulin. And then five minutes later, it'll read again and say, okay, something's changed. You need more or less insulin than you were getting before. And so it's able to make hundreds of decisions a day and make small changes so it can fix itself if the data changes. Um, but it often catches things sooner than a human would notice. If the blood sugar starts rising after a meal or from stress or from exercise or vice versa, if the blood sugar suddenly starts dropping, um, either it just starts sliding down or it drops really suddenly, the system can react to that much more quickly than a human might notice, um, depending on what they're doing, including sleeping. And so that's what OpenAPS is doing is saying, hey, if you want to build this system yourself to do it, if you don't have access to a commercial solution, um, when we first started, there was no commercial solution. And so for three years, it was either wait for commercial solution or choose to do it yourself. Now, at least in the U.S., there's one commercial solution, um, but it's not necessarily perfect for everybody. And so now people have a choice. You can go with a commercial solution if you can access it and get insurance approval um, and afford it, or you can choose to use a do-it-yourself system, of which there are multiple, or you can choose to wait for something else in the future. Um, and the nice thing now is that waiting is a choice. It used to be you had no choice. You had to wait. Um, but now there's a lot more options, both in the commercial technology and what's coming down the pipeline, as well as what people can do themselves. Um, and that just, as okay, a patient, okay. feels really, really empowering. All right, all right. So are you even allowed to access these medical devices without voiding something or causing a problem? I mean, like, let's say insurance pays for your CGM. You know, if, I don't know if the CGM has an API associated with it or not, but are you even allowed to access this and take the data and do stuff with it? You know, either personally oh. or as a commercial enterprise? Well, there's no commercial enterprise in the DIY community, so it's just individuals accessing their own data. And yes, we're absolutely authorized to get our own data. Um, one good thing some of the companies have done is made it possible for patients to securely go into the server, use their lo login, and get their data off in real time, which is absolutely wonderful. Um, you're not necessarily relying anymore on reverse engineering methods to get your own glucose data off the device. Um, so there's numerous ways to get your data. It doesn't void your warranty, which is absolutely great. The main limitation is around the insulin pumps. We are actually using these older generation insulin pumps that were recalled because of the security hole that actually allows us to remotely communicate with them. So in the U.S., we have this one pump um, where you can remotely command it, which is a security risk. Um, but in Europe and elsewhere in the world, there's actually in-warranty modern Bluetooth-enabled pumps that are, allow you to talk directly to a phone. And so the phone can hold the algorithm and have the app interface. And you don't have to carry a separate small computer, which is what we have to do in the U.S., is carry a separate radio bridge or a separate computer in order to talk to the pump. So in the U.S., because these things are already off the market, they've been recalled or they're out of warranty or whatever, you're not voiding your warranty by using these devices in this way. It is considered off-label use because you are not getting prescribed um, you know, a closed-loop system because it's not a commercial product. A, a provider can't prescribe that, um, but you're not voiding your warranty. And it's really up to the individual and their healthcare provider to decide, you know, is this a good option for them? And one interesting thing, we've seen several uh, healthcare um, diabetes groups around the world, especially the national um, advocacy organizations, start to issue statements, advocacy statements that say, you know, we should, we can't endorse the, this DIY technology 
but we should support patients in their choices and patients should have choices. Um, so we're seeing movement in terms of people understanding that, is this the best option for everybody? No, um, but it is a solution. It is working for some people and it's really, really promising. So the main solution is to take this data in real time um, and maybe have it available on your smartphone, but then layer in uh, an AI or some kind of decision-making guidance on top of it so that you get better compliance with the uh, insulin and blood sugar levels, or is the goal oh, just part of that? Yeah, that's basically the whole system is get data from pump and CGM, decide what to do, tell the pump what to do, read it back over and over again. And that can either be on a separate device or it could be on your mobile phone, depending on which pump you have access to and what the capabilities are. Um, there's some people who really want it to be on their phone that they use every day, which is great. And that's one option. There are other people who don't want their primary phone to also be kind of their medical system. And they might choose to use a separate device or a secondary phone for that. Right, gotcha. What about the algorithms, though, that will say what to do? You know, if you have an algorithm that influences a pump, I mean, I would think that would have to be, uh, I don't know how personalized it would have to be, but it have to be sophisticated in order to be able to see what you need. So the way diabetes works right now is that you have a couple of settings you use to decide how much insulin you need. So each person is different in terms of one unit of insulin might lower my blood sugar by 40 points. It might lower you by 30 points. And those are the settings already used by you to either inject insulin manually or have that in your insulin pump. So what a closed loop system does is it actually uses those same settings. So the algorithm is the same for everybody, but it uses your settings for how much insulin your body needs as the baseline settings that are factored into the calculation for how much you need. And we don't use um, a machine learning algorithm. It's a basic heuristic algorithm that's modeled off the same math you would do manually, but the difference is you do it every five minutes. And we have an estimated over 10 million hours of data in the patient community. We've got several self-reported studies, several observational studies, um, no adverse events reported in those studies, and it's showing as good or better outcomes than some of the commercial and academic systems that are using more complex machine learning models. Um, so some of that is attributed to even a really basic algorithm is so much better than a human having to do all the work. Um, some of it's related to just the interoperability and the usability and flexibility of a DIY system really working well for people. But that data is really promising to show that even a basic algorithm can do really, really well. And so it does not have to be, um, you know, fancy AI and machine learning. Um, there's certainly a lot of options and a lot of different algorithms you can use, but the most basic ones are still quite effective as well. Well, shouldn't an insulin pump have an algorithm? Isn't that how the pump works? Is that, is that the an way algorithm an insulin pump the blood sugar level? That's not how a standard insulin pump works, and that's a really common misconception. Um, a standard insulin pump has pre-programmed insulin rates throughout the day. Those are called basal rates. And so you might need 0.6 units in the morning, you know, 1.2 units in the middle of the day, and then down to 1.0 when you go to bed. And those rates do not know anything about your blood sugar. They do not respond to your blood sugar. Um, it's just static insulin delivery. And so technically, if you go low, the pump will keep dosing that insulin unless you tell it to do otherwise. And that's exactly why we need the closed loop system so that it, the insulin delivery can be adjusted in response to the glucose levels. Um, and so that's yeah, kind of the whole point of open APS. That's insane. How could something like that be approved? It would like kill people. It easily could, so, you know, especially when you're sleeping, it could easily put right. you into a state where you die in your sleep. So diabetes is super, super risky. And so when people hear about a closed loop system, they think, oh my gosh, it's so risky. Not recognizing that a standalone insulin pump, like you said, is designed to keep dosing without knowledge of the blood sugars. 
Um, and even without an insulin pump, manual injections, you're still at risk overnight just because your body, you know, might be really, really sensitive to insulin that day. And what you injected the day before could influence it. Um, so diabetes is already really, really risky. And a pump does have some benefits over manual injections, but it also has some of those additional risks as well, which is it just keeps going. Um, and so that's why having access to the CGM is really good with alarms. Um, but that's also why I was so driven to get alarms that I could hear and would wake me up at night was because I was concerned about me sleeping through an alarm being low and my pump continuing to dose. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really challenging when you hear about that and you don't necessarily realize, oh, a pump doesn't do the automatic adjustment like you think it does. And it's been really interesting to hear how many people don't realize that these insulin pumps, the traditional insulin pump is that dumb and just does that static delivery. Um, and then once people hear that, then they're like, okay, uh, you know, even though this, you know, open source closed loop system does introduce additional risk because you have an algorithm modulating the insulin delivery, it maybe doesn't sound as risky or as scary for patients to be doing this when they realize what we were dealing with before, which was in some cases equally scary or more risky, um, you know, depending on how people, uh, you know, assess that risk. I know that's insane. I mean, what you eat dramatically affects your insulin. None of your exercise and the pump just, <laughs> okay. I don't know how anyone uses it and just put, I mean, how could anyone just say, oh, I'll just put it on these settings and uh, everything will be fine. I mean, it, everyone's different. It's, the things they eat are different. The timings, the, no one, I mean, well, very few people are like robots and eat the exact same thing every day at the same time. The whole thing's crazy. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly the problem of type one diabetes. People don't realize until you start to think about it, how complex and how scary it is. Like the moment you're diagnosed, okay, you're living a giant science experiment for the rest of your life. And it's not static because you can, even if you try to eat the same thing, like if you eat the same thing for lunch every day, you won't get the same results because it depends on what you had for breakfast, the level of insulin activity you have going on board, how much you slept the night before. If you're sleep deprived or jet lagged, that can influence your blood sugar. Um, if you exercise or walk to work, all of those things will drastically change what happens at lunchtime every day, even if you eat the exact same thing that you know what's in it. Um, so just That's right. I your hope stress anybody, level, your hydration, I mean, all that stuff. Yeah. So people take away one thing from this podcast. I hope they understand that type 1 diabetes is really, really, really hard. And that's one of the reasons why we need these new technologies and why we're encouraging development of them in the open source and academic and commercial sectors because millions of people are living with this and dealing with these challenges and we're doing okay. Like it's not the worst thing to live with, but even with access to insulin and a pump and a CGM, which is not something we can take for granted, it's still really, really hard. Yeah, that's crazy. I didn't realize how, how, uh, what kind of insulin does, does it dispense? I've heard there's uh, fast acting, slow acting. Is it just one right. kind of insulin? Right. And insulin pumps all use the faster acting insulins. Um, the slower active insulins are only ones that you would inject. Um, so you use the same kind of insulin in your insulin pump, whether you're using a standard pump or you're choosing to close the loop. So the insulin doesn't change when you decide to close the loop. Okay. Um, so what are some things that you've learned? You know, you don't have to name names or anything, but what's an example of a situation and how would it normally be addressed by a dumb pump? And then how is it addressed by your closed loop system and with, you know, to, to a different effect? So one of the major things that we learned um, in the process of closing the loop that would help me if you took away my closed loop today and I had to manage diabetes manually, I would still be so better off because of everything that I learned. And one of those things is really understanding the timing of insulin because it's not instantaneous. It peaks 
in about 45 to 60 minutes. And that's slightly different for everybody, depending on the type of insulin. And it stays active in your body for six to seven hours. So there's kind of a peak and then an exponential curve of how that insulin acts over time. And you can use insulin kind of like a gas pedal. You can give more insulin, but you can also reduce the amount of insulin you're getting compared to that kind of baseline rate that the pump is programmed to. And it kind of acts like stepping off the gas pedal. Um, It's not, you know, once the insulin goes into your body, you can't take it out. But if you give a little bit too much and you start dropping, you can set your insulin levels to be lower or zero for the next hour. And it can act like stepping off the gas pedal and helping you slow down that drop in blood sugar. Um, So we will set temporary basal rates of lower amounts or zero um, in order to act like stepping off the gas. And that works really, really well, um, even in manual diabetes mode. But it also is essentially what the closed loop system is doing is it's always giving a little bit more or a little bit or a lot less compared to kind of that baseline rate. Um, And that's really, really effective. And so instead of always having to drink a juice box or eat something, if your blood sugar is dropping, sometimes, depending on the timing, if you get the timing right, you can reduce the amount of insulin and prevent having to eat the extra sugar. Hmm. Interesting. um, So what is the effect, you know, since you've started using it, what's the effect? Is your goal to minimize blood sugar fluctuations? Is your goal just to feel good? Is it both? I mean, what are the outcomes that you want for people and people who have wanted for themselves? So for me, it was all about feeling safe to go to sleep at night and knowing that I had a system to wake me up if something was going on, but otherwise to prevent having to wake me up. Um, So just feeling safe to go to sleep at night is my number one outcome. But in the morning when I wake up, I feel amazing compared to how I did before because I got a full night of sleep. My blood sugars weren't fluctuating like crazy. I didn't have to wake up and drink a juice box. I didn't have to wake up and take insulin. Um, so I just have so much more energy and feel better all the time. And my clinical outcomes in terms of what my average blood sugar is, has also drastically improved. But it's kind of interesting when you talk to people in the community who've chosen to do this, everybody kind of has a different reason of why they do it. Some people like me, they want safer overnight. Other people, they don't worry as much about overnight, but, you know, they want better blood sugars for, you know, their future outcomes and taking care of their family. And other people, they just want an overall better quality of life, maybe for the parents as well as the child, because diabetes is often a family disease. So there's a lot of reasons why somebody would choose this technology. But for me, it was and is always about sleep. Hmm. Okay. Um, Again, what secondary effects have you noticed? Because now you're controlling your blood sugars better. You know, you don't you don't worry about sleeping, so you probably sleep better. So that probably has a whole cascade of beneficial things, which is good. But are there any other effects that you've noticed that uh, you know are interesting or curious to you, through, from you or through users? Um, I mean, I just feel like every time something happens in my life, it's just I don't have to worry about diabetes. So, for example, I got the norovirus from my nephew two Thanksgivings ago. He actually took it down 16 adults in our family with the norovirus. And traditionally, when you start having you know some kind of GI something going on, you worry about dehydration and your blood sugars being either too high or too low and needing to go to the hospital. And I was very worried about needing to go to the ER to help me deal with the symptoms. But the system was able to respond to the fact that I was not absorbing my food um, and that I was not eating for several days and I did not have a single out of range blood sugar. And I did not have to do any work other than just, you know, suffering from the norovirus. So it's, it's just mind blowing how much like every day or common what I call normal people sickness occur, occur, occurs 
And diabetes is no longer the number one concern for me. Um, similarly, a couple months ago, I actually fell hiking off the path and flipped a couple times and broke my ankle. Um, and I was able to see my blood sugar rising from the stress on the side of the mountain with a broken ankle. Um, and the system responded right. and was able to keep my blood sugar in range with a broken ankle. Uh, and I never went out of range from that. Um, so it's just really, really amazing that diabetes is no longer the most important primary worrying factor for my health, regardless of what comes up. Um, it can basically handle any fluctuations in blood sugar up or down, and I can focus on whatever else is happening in life that might be influencing those blood sugar changes. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> they don't have a, um, there's no such thing as a, a glucose pump that would accompany an insulin pump, or maybe that would be uh, whipsawing you back and forth between, you know, too low and too high of uh, sugar readings. So there's a, something called glucagon, which traditionally has been kind of an emergency injection. And what it does is it causes, it's an injection that causes your liver to dump glucose, um, but it's never been shelf stable. And so it's just been an emergency injection thing that you carry around kind of like an EpiPen and you use in the case of an emergency where you're not responsive or your blood sugar is dangerously low. Um, but they haven't had shelf stable versions of that that would allow you to, you know, have it in a pump chamber, kind of like insulin that's starting to change. They've been researching on that. It sounds like there's a couple of shelf-stable glucagon versions going into clinical trials right now. So that might be a future option for a bihormonal closed-loop system that can allow the glucagon to respond if your blood sugar does drop low. Um, so I think we'll eventually get there in terms of having multiple hormones, not just insulin for the closed loop, but we're not quite there yet in terms of having it approved and on the market and something that's uh, you know, known how to work on a regular basis versus using it as kind of an emergency uh, rescue drug. Right, right. Um, I've also heard that um, even for type 1s, certainly for type 2s and non-diabetic people, CGMs are, uh, you know, are hoarded by the insurance companies. They don't like to give them out. They don't want to pay for them. Is there a way to manually do this? You know, can I, like, text my readings five, six, seven, ten times a day into the system or email myself or type them in on some interface or some app so I still can get the benefits of this system somehow? Yeah, what you're talking about is an open loop system. And that can be done either with entering your manual blood sugar readings a couple times a day or by feeding a CGM in, even if you don't have a pump that connects to the system. And you can get guidance on, here's what's happened, here's what we need to do to recommend it. The challenge, though, with, you know, five to 10 readings a day versus, you know, 250 plus, is you don't quite have the full picture of the trends of what's been happening um, to really map out what's going to happen in the future. So you can get decision support with your finger sticks in an open loop mode, but CGM is really kind of the critical piece. And CGM access is something that's really a struggle around the world. Um, I was in Europe a couple of weeks ago, and there's a lot of countries that even with great insurance for things like and coverage for things like insulin, most people are still having to self-fund out of pocket for the CGM um, and self-fund for the pump. So coverage and access to even things like pumps and CGMs like insulin are not something that we can take for granted as somebody with type 1, as somebody with type 2. Um, and then there's also, like you said, there's a population of people out there without type 1 or type 2 who are interested in glucose tracking, um, but it can be very, very hard to access these devices. So hopefully we'll have more on the market that drive price down different types of versions of them, some that maybe won't be used for clinical decision-making, uh, but might be good for fitness tracking and things like that. But we still need, you know, the best sensors um, and glucose monitors out there for type one, since we are, you know, in real time dosing insulin off that data. 
What um what kind of interesting anecdotal results have you seen? Are, are you well? I guess it's a couple of questions. How many approximate users of your system do you guess are out there, and are you pseudonymizing that data and keeping it for you know like a overall analysis of how people respond to insulin, or is it uh, it's just the data kept individually by each person and not pooled? Yeah, because it's an individual self-built system, we don't have kind of a global tracking. Um, we estimate just based on people who fill out a Google form that we easily have over 1,300 people globally using one of the DIY systems, but that's a pretty conservative estimate. Um, we think we yeah. have over 10 million hours of real life experience with these systems. Again, we're not quite sure, you know, we can't track, oh, somebody stopped using it or somebody came on and didn't tell us, but conservative estimates, there's thousands of people using this, millions of hours of data, but it's all self-tracked. But to help look at the community outcomes and show what's being done, we do have a place for people to anonymously donate their data, which is what's being used to fuel some of the research studies that I talked about. Um, so if anybody's interested, they can go to openaps.org outcomes, and you can see kind of the latest community estimate in terms of number of people using this technology, kind of the estimated volume of hours we think are out there, as well as links to some of the latest research studies, um, both retrospective, observational, and in the future, there might be randomized control trials that will be able to link from there as well. Well, what are some interesting things that you've observed from the, the data that's come in? Um, one of the things that we've been able to move towards is actually going from a what's considered a hybrid closed-loop system, where somebody still has to enter what they're eating and do a manual dose at mealtime. That's what the first commercial system has to do. That's what we did when we started four and a half years ago. But we've actually been able to advance the algorithm to the point where we have features you can turn on where you don't have to necessarily manually inject at mealtime or manually press the button on your pump at mealtime and the system will actually respond and get the same outcomes you were getting before when you were still announcing your meals. Um, so that's really, really cool to see that we've been able to continue advancing on the algorithm and iterating over time to the point where we take away and automate more and more and more of the work that the human historically had to do. Um, and that's been some nice advancements to see. So we have data from a teen who eats 200 grams of carbs a day, which is considered to be probably a little bit more than average. He doesn't tell the system anything. He doesn't tell it what or when he's eating. He doesn't do the dosing. He just carries this thing around and it's able to keep him at or below the clinical standards for his age, um, which is absolutely phenomenal. So it's really, really cool to see how this is working for people of all ages and all backgrounds. Um, again, I started using it, worked really well for me, wanted to share it with other people, but we didn't know is this going to work well for other people, um, that people have been kind enough to share their data and stories like that to see that, yeah, it's working really, really well for even small children or older adults, or regardless of how active you are, um, it's able to be customized to really work for your lifestyle, which is great to hear that that's happening. So it would look more at the slope of the, uh, the blood sugar level, and it would say, All right, we don't care what you ate, the slope effect is the same, so we're going to uh, dose you with insulin in a certain way. Is that how it would Yeah, work? the system is... The system's constantly making predictions based on the amount of insulin, any knowledge about food, past trends, everything else. Does a variety of predictions and says, okay, you're rising, you're rising faster than expected. Adding more insulin would not cause a low, so we're going to dose more insulin. And then every five minutes, it redoes all those predictions, does all the same calculations, and does it over and over again. So if you start rising rapidly, that could be from an unannounced meal. It could be from a stress spike, excitement. Um, sometimes teenagers, when they go out on a date, they have a really sudden surge spike based on hormones and excitement. Um, so the system can see that and respond to that. But it looks and says, okay, even if this stopped right now and went back to normal, 
what's the safest amount of insulin we can dose right now without potentially causing a low. So the number one goal of the system is to not cause a low, not cause any short-term harm while mitigating hopefully the higher levels that can lead to longer-term damage. Um, and so the system's done really, really well with dealing with even some of those rapid rises for any of those reasons. So what's the end game here? Do you, is this patentable, what you created? Is it going to be commercialized or what do you want to do with it? So we decided very early on after we developed this that we wanted to make it open source. We could have certainly tried to commercialize it, but had we done that, we would have been regulated and not able to help people. Um, and we kind of felt that was unfathomable. We wanted to make this available for anybody who wanted to use it to be able to use it. So we decided to open source it. Um, it's licensed such that any individual or any company can use it. So obviously thousands of people have been using it, which is awesome. But we've also been encouraging researchers to use it and companies to use it. And we're kind of now to the point where we're seeing that vision of all of these groups using it, including a commercial company who's taken our code, run it side by side in simulations, found a found place where our ideas outperformed theirs in terms of safety features and edge cases and things like that. And so there's companies that are integrating our ideas into their products and bringing those to market, which is absolutely phenomenal because our goal has been to help people with type 1 diabetes. If people want to DIY, they can do it through DIY. But ideally, we want better commercial products to come out to market and to come out as fast as possible. So we've also been playing a role in kind of speeding up development timelines, speeding up regulatory review timelines. And that's been really, really great. Well, how are you supported? How do you, how do you keep doing this work? We've always done this as a project in our spare time and in our free time because, again, we were helped by people to build my first system. We wanted to turn around and help other people. So there's no organization behind this. Nobody's doing any of this for money. It's just truly a community of people with diabetes who want to help other people. Um, that's very common in open source, and we're making it really common for open source healthcare communities to do the same thing. Yeah, that's great. Excellent. All right. Um, any implications for type 2? Or uh, pre-diabetes people, is that at all, uh, is there an interest out there for that or is it just type 1? So it's, these systems can work for anybody who is using an insulin pump. So there are, there are not many people, but there are some with type 2 diabetes who are using insulin and or an insulin pump. And they could certainly use these systems if they had the pump in the CGM and wanted to do so. Um, Pre-diabetes, it's probably more important to get that population on CGM so they can start seeing their data and kind of seeing the ramifications of different behavioral choices and influence on blood sugar. But if somebody ends up on insulin because they have type 2 diabetes or they have type 1 diabetes or another type of diabetes, this type of technology absolutely works well for them. And then there's also tools that we've developed for the closed loop system to help people figure out their insulin settings, for example, that can be used by people who are not closed looping, whether they're on injections or they're on an insulin pump. There's a tool, for example, called AutoTune that does that. Um, so that's really nice to see that even though the people doing the DIY closed loop might be you know, less than 1% of people who use insulin worldwide, but we're able to make tools and share them back out with the broader community. Very good. All right, so what's the best way for people that um, have type one or know someone that has type one or you know, they have type two, uh, you know, they're anywhere within this world. How do they uh, look at your stuff and get access and, uh, you know, try it out? So historically, I would tell people to go to openaps.org. That's kind of the project website that gives people a high-level overview of OpenAPS in particular. But as of this week, you could also go to artificialpancreasbook.com. I just wrote a book and all the content's available on the web, but you can also get print or Kindle copies through Amazon. And it's meant to be an introduction to anybody who's hearing about closed loop and really wants to understand okay, what does this mean? How is this different than how I treat my diabetes now? 
it's not so much about DIY or commercial systems, but really about help you understand this type of technology and what's coming and decide, do I want it now? Do I want to wait? What would be right for me? And helping people make their choices. So if you're new to this concept of closed loop artificial pancreas stuff, that's another good place to go. If you want DIY specifically, you can head to openaps.org. All right. That's great. But then, I mean, it's amazing stuff you're doing. It's going to have tremendous implications. It already is for people. So, uh, you know, keep up the great work, and I, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity and having me. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you.